Are we, are we live now? I'm recording. You're listening to Mumbrella Cast. Mumbrella, Mumbrella, Mumbrella Cast. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Hannah Blackiston. Joining me to break down your week in media and marketing is Mumbrella's Tim Burrows. Hello. And reporters Brittany Rigby. Hello. And Zoe Wilkinson. Hello. This week we'll be talking about... Nine and seven bosses warn of soft ad markets. The ABC faces backlash. Woolworths, Meyer, and Australia Post offer up their Christmas ads. And all the winners and losers from Radio Ratings Survey 7. First up this week, Nine held its annual general meeting, giving shareholders a chance to question board members and presenting the market with its 2019 financial year results, along with first quarter results for financial year 2020 and the prediction for the years to come. Those predictions were fairly sobering. Nine did downgrade its growth forecasts, and we'll get onto that a little bit later. But also for the first time, CEO Hugh Marks admitted that advertiser boycott of Macquarie media station 2GB following comments made by breakfast host Alan Jones about New Zealand PM Jacinda Ardern had hurt revenues with the radio business. Brittany, it's been a little while now since... Alan's comments. Never forget. Never forget. Take us back. How many advertisers did we see speak out against him? Well, Mad Effing Witches, which was one of the main campaign groups behind the boycott, it was kind of spearheaded by them and then Sleeping Giants supported. They actually responded to the AGM coverage and Hugh Mark saying, yes, this affected us. Yes, it hurt revenues and posted on Facebook that the number at the moment is 260 advertisers either out or committing to still not support the station. So the Facebook post was essentially a a recall to action to their supporters and say, we're not creating fury or we're not creating outrage. We're a channel for your outrage. So supporters, fans, audience, are you still outraged? Do you still think that we should punish him? And if so, can we drive that number up even further now that they've said, yes, this is hurting us? Do you know if that number has been checked recently? Is that a number of who is still out or is that a number of people who have at any one point said they are out? So they've said as of today, it's more than 260. They did say that a few have snuck back. Um, so the Facebook post says they know they're being watched and they know that they're on notice. So they've said that kind of advertisers are sitting there waiting to see if we go back, will people still be angry? And so that's what they're asking. Are we going to be angry about that? Are we still angry? Do we think it's okay? It's interesting as well, because there was a question from the shareholders um, aimed at Chairman Peter Costello about how specific the damage was. So how many advertisers did they lose? How much money did they lose? He was declined to give the specifics about it. And I imagine we're not going to be able to see that for a little while, I wouldn't have thought. But it's kind of interesting to me, I think, because as we'll find on find out later on in the podcast, it hasn't hurt Jones at all in the ratings. Mm. So it's. I think it'll be interesting to see if advertisers can stick with it as Jones sticks with his number one breakfast show. And I feel like Hugh Marks has to kind of tread a a weird and blurry line, right, in that they've just taken over Macquarie. That's official. He's had to come out and support 2GB stars, including Alan Jones, 
in his email to Macquarie staff, he made it quite clear that one of the best things about Macquarie is it's Talkback hosts, what Talkback does, Talkback's value to listeners, Talkback's value to advertisers. And so he's come out supporting Jones. There's been reports that, you know, they've met and they're fine, but then he's also having to face kind of shareholder pressure and advertiser pressure and consumer pressure and whether or not that pressure keeps up, I guess, is something to keep an eye on. I wonder as well whether this type of boycott, how the dynamic changes now that Macquarie Media is a fully owned subsidiary of Nine. So, you know, you you have people boycotting potentially the Alan Jones show. Mm. Maybe that escalated to the whole radio station uh, to GB, maybe to Macquarie Media as a whole, but that, that was where it was quarantined, if it went that far. If there's another issue in the future, does, does, does Nine become the target for that sort of campaign? Um, I, 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 I don't know how campaigners think about brands, but in terms of the 2GB brand versus the, the Nine brand being part of the same family, but it, it makes it feel to me like the, the stakes may be a little bit higher next time. Mm, and Will, it, it's taken a little while, I think, for us to think about, say, the Sydney Morning Herald and immediately associate that with Nine, right? For for a while after the merger, it was still Sydney Morning Herald, Fairfax. I think we're at a point now where we we make that association. So how long will it take before when someone says Alan Jones, we don't think 2GB, we think nine more broadly Mm, that's a really good segue into something else that was discussed at the agm um the majority of questions actually from shareholders were about editorial independence that kind of comes off the back of obviously the liberal party fundraiser which was held at nines willoughby headquarters but also off the back of um across the weekend there was instead of running a front page in the sydney morning herald of the horrific bushfires which have been ripping across the country they instead ran an exclusive interview with today's new host carl steph new old host carl stefanovic um so a lot of the questions were about you know fairfax obviously has an editorial independence stance nine doesn't necessarily have that whether that was going to be uphold upheld which both Hugh marks and peter costello said it would be um but i do wonder if it, it it's really interesting you wonder what would happen where because both of them said, oh, you know, some of our brands, particularly 2GB, particularly Nine, are quite known for their outspoken people. But if that does start to hurt Nine's revenues, will they continue to be known for their outspoken people? But my question off the back of this is, do you reckon, Tim, throwing this at you, Nine would ever get away with impacting editorial? Do you think they could pull that off without everybody smelling a rat a mile away? I don't think this thing ever happens all at once, does it? It's mm. It's... It's little by little a culture changes, and I'm not saying it will, but you know, you sort of, you, you know, I I'm a great fan of um oh the Howard Evans book. I think it's called Good Times, Bad Times, about his time as the editor of the Sunday Times in the UK, being there when uh, Rupert Murdoch took it over, and how there were all of these promises about independence, and then gradually that went away day by day um you know there were there were promises of independence charters all of those things so in the end it's 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 about intent but what what you absolutely have 
within the old, let's call them Fairfax titles, the old Fairfax culture. You, you know, you have journalists who grew up in that world, who champion it, who fight for it. So I don't think it's as if somebody will write a memo and say, guys, we're not independent <laughs> anymore. Uh, it's, it's more those gradually sort of slightly insidious things. And, you know, to your point on the, the, the questions at the AGM, the fact that people were asking that question about the fact that the, 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 the Carl story was on the front page on the same day Australia was beginning to anticipate the, the bushfires emergency and it was already sort of underway. Now, I can totally understand how an, edit, you know, an editor might make the decision, this is a great story, Carl's back, we've got the exclusive. Now, it probably helped them get the exclusive that they were part of the family, um, not least because it feels to me like at, at, at the moment the, you know, the, the kind of PR people at nine don't feel great about the uh, the journalism of some of the news core titles when it comes to the Today Show. So you can see why they, they might not choose to give the story there. But of course, it then almost comes two ways where people start perceiving it as a piece of PR story. Whereas I, I suspect any journalist would be, you know, if you were offered that exclusive, of course you'd want it. Mm. Um, but of course, how you present it, really unfortunate. You know, genuinely Fairfax has much earlier deadlines than News Corp. That is... That, you know, that's a fact. They have really early print deadlines. So, you know, the latest on the bushfires probably wasn't available. But I remember just that night, I think we were all chatting by Slack. Vivian was starting weekend duty. And there was the weird thing where the story went up online. I remember actually, I was in Singapore. I was watching uh, the ABC Australia channel when they were reviewing the papers from Australia. There was the print edition. Went online, saw the story. A few minutes later, it's gone down again. So there was there was something weird happened um that felt like some internal communication that i don't think anyone got to the bottom of no that was a bit weird yeah you make some good points there and it's probably worth noting as well a lot of the shareholders who asked that question did identify as x well fairfax shareholders who are obviously now nine shareholders so i imagine it's a bit of an old guard representation there um, but let's get on to ad markets. So the other main thing to come out of the AGM was Nine have downgraded their growth forecast, dropping them into single digits. And Hugh Marks also said improvements that had been seen in September were likely not reflective of the ongoing poor consumer sentiment, which was creating a weak ad market. That was then piled on top of by Seven, who echoed the concerns at its own general meeting. CEO James Warburton told investors that the market is short and difficult to predict and also dropped its forecast to mid-single digits. Is any of this surprising to anybody? I feel like we've been talking about weak ad markets for so long now, it doesn't seem particularly surprising. I, I thought there was some light at the end of the tunnel, the last <laughs> I heard, but reading this, to use the old joke, it sounds like that's in fact an oncoming train. Yeah. Um, but yes, yeah, so I, I, I Look, it tends to be, you know, the, 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 those hints from the TV networks are a big clue on what the media economy is doing. So I, I was a little bit downcast when I saw it. Oh, maybe I'm a pessimist, but I was like, yeah, it's kind of not super surprising, especially given standard media index numbers from the past year, um, decline after decline, month after month. But also being a little bit pessimistic, to shareholders means that if it does improve in 2020, that's a nice surprise rather than, you know, there there are people in the industry who are saying it's going to turn around in 2020, everyone's being too negative, it's going to be fine and that's all well and good but what if it's not? So I think, you know, cautious optimism is okay but saying, you know, there's every chance that this is where we're going to land means that if they do do better then 
it's a pleasant surprise rather than assuming that that's what's going to happen. Have I told you my, my, my investor theory of standard media index? You have not. No, but I love it already. <laughs> well, that's very kind of you. You might be disappointed. And I, may, I, may, I, may, I may have built it up too much. Just the number of times you see standard media index, they put out their monthly press releases absolutely in the public domain. Bad news, good news. Moment more recently, bad news. And then a few, sometimes a few months later, the TV networks put out their updates. Tell us what, as observers, we already knew from seeing the Standard Media Index um, announcement. And the share prices crash. All you have to do to make a fortune is as soon as you see the bad news from Standard Media Index, short the stocks. <laughs> Guaranteed way of making money. God, go. it here first, guys. Could we become rich just from this little <laughs> tip from Tim? Just from standard media. <laughs> hey, uh, I, I've also uh, just thought of this one as well. I put a bet on this week. Ooh. You know those stupid sports press, press releases that come in? Yes. For The Bachelorette? No, not for The Bachelorette, okay. Okay. but let's get on to that in a minute. Um, <laughs> no, they, they've offered odds of $1.18 on Pete beating Carl, Pete on Sky News beating Carl, on the first day for uh, ratings, when the first, when the two are head Sky News never ever beats nine. That is basically yeah, free money. Yeah, that, you're right. That is free money. There's wow. no way. The maximum bet they will take on that is five hundred and fifty-six dollars. So I have actually, <laughs> I, 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 I detest gambling. I think it's an incredibly stupid thing to do. But I actually opened a sports bet account and put five hundred and fifty-six dollars on that. So come January the first, which is the day they picked for the day, so I'm not even sure there'll be, or the first Monday in January, which, which both shows are on air. Um, I might win a hundred dollars. Yeah. Wow. But we digress. <laughs> but more to the point, The Bachelor. Yep. What do you want to know, Tim? <laughs> some sports bet ad. Um, or some sports bet. Yeah. Personalized. The, the odds are always on the Bachelor winner odds are always on sports bet. Yeah. At the moment, I think they have Carlin. Yeah. Carlin on 225 and Tim, because he has two M's, um, on $4. So we'll wait and see. There is a Tim on The Bachelor with two M's. Yes, two M's, there is. Yeah. I, when I was about 12, I went through a phase of spelling oh, my name no. with two M's. But in my defense, I was about 12. <laughs> was it like when you go through a boy band phase and that was like your boy band name? Not specifically that. Okay. But, um, more just uh, pretentiousness and attention seeking, I right. think. That's okay. what 12-year-olds are best at. Speaking of free money, though. <laughs> <laughs> this is the Mumbrella betting Look, podcast. This is what I am interested in. This is my special interest, how to get money for free. Um, this... This betting email that we got about The Bachelorette, so it says, bookmakers believe there's a 17% chance nobody wins. She's confirmed in an interview to us that she picks somebody. So that seems like a strange... What odds are they offering on nobody winning there? I had a quick glance. That was in the subject line, but I couldn't find I'm pretty sure on Sportsbet it's like $6. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah. I guess we're all going to be opening up Sportsbet accounts. Next up, the ABC responds to backlash about hashtag MeToo, Q&A and the Olympics. Just a content warning, this next discussion includes references to domestic violence and rape, which may be triggering to some listeners. So it's been an interesting week for the ABC, with the national broadcaster presenting its 2020 content offerings at its upfronts, but also facing numerous amounts of backlash in response to some of its editorial choices and a documentary error. 
So let's start off with the good stuff, the upfronts. I attended them last week in Sydney and it's such a different vibe to the commercial upfronts. You know, you definitely get the feeling all they're doing is kind of showing off for their own staff and for journalists. I was going to ask, who goes? Because obviously not media buyers. No, it was a very small room and um, Sean McAuliffe particularly was playing to the journalists in the room and it seemed to be almost entirely a couple of media journalists and then ABC staffers. Um, there was a weirdly large amount of ABC talent there who didn't speak. Like Julius Amiro was standing just in front of me. Um, so yeah, it was quite interesting actually. So they've announced, they've also announced some really interesting stuff, which I kind of got a bit depressed after it because I was like, the content they've announced really kind of, ins- you know, inspired me in as much as an upfront session does. And it just seemed so much like content that commercial networks wouldn't take a chance on. Um, for example, they're doing an investigative series with Sarah Ferguson on Catholic priests, where she actually went into prisons and interviewed some of them. And they've also got a documentary series coming up with dark emu author Bruce Pascoe. Um, what did we all think of the content on offer? Look, I suppose one initial reaction for me was um, it's just impossible to have too much Sean McAuliffe in your schedule, really, isn't it? <laughs> and he did say that. He did make it very clear that he will be on the station a lot. And he's doing this documentary on Australia's relationship with alcohol, which I, I think is really, it is a really interesting subject. I'm so subject. keen mm. on that one. Yeah. I've been thinking about the subject a lot kind of recently, which when you, Hannah, came back from the upfronts and were messaging me and saying that that was one of the things on offer, I was like, I will definitely watch that. Um, particularly headed into Christmas season. It's a, it's weird how much people and, companies and culture kind of rely on it so I'm super keen for that one and I think that you're right in that it's like man this stuff looks so good it's unfortunate that we know that it's going to be quite down the list on ratings um I'm really keen for yet another season of you can't ask that love that um and yeah the the prison um and priests documentary with Sarah Ferguson sounds awesome they promised there was at the event, Sarah um, teased a very big reveal at the end of that docuseries, which she said she couldn't tell us what it was. But I have seen some speculations since then that it's maybe Pell related. Um, so I think that one's going to be one to watch. And I guess the risk for them on that one is proceedings potentially still active, depending what happens with his, I know he's now to the, uh, the, the high court. I think the seven judges are going to, as we, we record, I think that they, They've agreed to to hear whether there'll actually be a final round of appeal, I think, is where they're at, isn't it? Yeah, so they've basically referred it to the full bench to decide on whether or not he has leave to appeal. But sadly for the ABC, things did not stay good for very long. Uh, shortly after the upfronts, it made the decision to pull an episode of Q&A. The episode featured speakers from Melbourne's Feminist Ideas Festival broadside, um, including some controversial opinions from Mona el and excessive swearing. Um, it's interesting, though, when uh, there were a lot of reports the episode had been pulled and for about... 20 hours after that, I think I could still access it. So I'm not really sure whether they maybe took it down and put it back up. Um, but it has, as of this point, been taken down. Uh, this is probably a question that nobody can really answer, but I do wonder whether they made the right choice doing that. I don't think they did because you and I were chatting about it on Monday. We both watched it 
and sort of understood the whole context around which the comments were made. The the swearing in terms of um, what you can and can't say on ABC or on Q&A, I, I almost understand that more than I understand the the comments that people are really up in arms about. It's like, isn't this what the public broadcaster is supposed to do? Like there was a Four Corners episode in which Steve Bannon was made to kind of look like a, a reasonable or understandable kind of a guy. If we can have that, surely we can have an episode in which it was branded as, you know, these are feminists who have really strong opinions they're out here to air them it seems really disappointing for us to have kind of that caliber of journalistic talent such as Mona and then her episodes pulled it it just feels to me like these are conversations that we need to be having she wasn't saying let's go kill all men it was men are very clearly killing women that is statistically proven as it is like (laughs) The, the controversy seems to also come in about whether or not it's okay to then like kill a rapist, I think was, was one of the comments made. And it's like, but legally we've already decided that that's okay. Like regardless of what the perpetrator or offender has done, whether or not it's that or otherwise, provocation exists as a defense. We've got battered wife syndrome established as a, as a principle we've already decided socially that there are certain circumstances in which we accept that violence against another person if provoked is okay. So it just felt like a storm in a teacup, people that were angry that hadn't actually watched it and had kind of just seen headlines and a few sort of buzzwords and like, yep, this is something for me to be angry about. And that's where I'm at on it. Very interesting that your uh, defense of it there sounds a lot like Peter Costello's defense of Alan Jones, where he also (laughs) said at the AGM, he also said a large proportion of the people who are upset about Alan's comments are not actual listeners of Alan. The people who are allegedly boycotting are not actual lovers of Alan. So, but yeah, I mean, I, I think we, you know, isn't this one of the things we see on both sides of the fence? Everybody gets this treatment. I thought the statement from Frank Kelly, who hosted the episode afterwards, was interesting because I, I think what she acknowledged was that the role of the host of that conversation is to challenge views, to put the alternative point of view, to test the views, and that perhaps she didn't do that well enough. I think she said that she'd anticipated that the views will be challenged within, within the panel. They weren't. And I think she used the phrase, I missed my moment or something like that. So I, you know, I, I, I've, I've previously seen episodes where, you know, people of the right have been able to state their views unchallenged and then have been similarly criticised. It's a criticism that's been made of Sky News. So to me that I'm not sure it's the editorial choice of the panel or, you know, the, the, the comments of the panel had the opportunity to make. It's whether the, 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 the the producers, because of course, you know, they have a say, it's not just the presenter herself, whether they actually took the moment to make it a properly moderated conversation. That, that, that for me, if there, if there was a weakness in it, that feels like perhaps is where it fell down. Do you feel like Fran's sort of self-criticism was correct? Because as someone who has also moderated a bunch of panels, like it feels like a tough thing to do, right? Like 
you're wanting to let everyone speak. You're not wanting to sort of interrupt the flow. You're, you're kind of questioning in the moment, how far does this have to go before I step in and say something? Like you would know it's a tough thing to do. Do you think Fran was right when she said I could have done better? Look, I, I think she's a professional. I don't think she would have said that if she didn't think that was the case. I don't think anyone lent on her to do it. Again, she seems the sort of bold character who would stand up to that. So, you know, I, I, I think she must honestly feel reflective that there was more she could have done in that situation. Mm. But yeah, absolutely. It's, it, you know, she's a professional. She'll be a million times better at it than, than I ever will be on stage or anything like that. Um, and yes, there are plenty of times we come back and think, yeah, I, I, I should have challenged that point. Or, I mean, you, you know, we, we, we've all mod- moderated panels at Mumbrella events. You know, you're, you're thinking about the next question. You're thinking, okay, there's four people speaking. Have I given them all a say? Do I have to go back to someone? Are their hands up in the, so you're thinking about a number of things and you think, I actually didn't hear the, the last thing that person just said because I was thinking about those things. So there's a lot. It's a lot easier to watch it back mm. and think, well, you missed your moment there. Um, you know, it, yes, it's, it's a lot harder than it looks. And that's why, um, you know, the ABC pays, pays those sort of people in those sort of roles pretty well. Mm. So more backlash for the ABC. A broadcaster also revealed this week that for the first time in 67 years, it will not be covering the Tokyo 2020 Olympics on live radio. It blamed a decision on budget cuts. Uh, Judith Whelan spoke to Virginia Trioli on the radio and said that it would cost the broadcaster over a million dollars to broadcast. Primarily that is in they need to go over to Tokyo and set up a studio over there. But they also said they would still be covering it uh, on Grandstand and across other programs. They just wouldn't have the dedicated digital radio channel for the Olympic broadcast. This was met with a st- insane amount of backlash. I, I don't know whether maybe I realized it was as big an issue as it was until I saw how angry people were about it. How is Australia going to find out who wins the Olympics now? Well, that was kind of Judith Whelan's point where she was like, there is so many offerings now for how you can watch this. Why should it? Because Virginia, I, I don't know whether anyone listened, but Virginia Trioli gave her a, quite a strong serve and said, you know, as the public broadcaster, how is it not your responsibility to bring sport to Australia, particularly in the Olympics where there are a lot of women playing, you know, there are people from all backgrounds, obviously the Paralympics as well. Um, and she just said, you know, Plenty of other people are doing that. It's not like Australians aren't going to get the Olympics because we're not doing it. My thoughts on it as well is that, yes, this this is something that maybe people should be angry about, but not angry at the ABC about. They have faced huge budget cuts. This is the result of that. The, the money's got to go from somewhere. So for me, it felt like, yep, that seems like a reasonable decision to do in those circumstances. There's plenty of other ways to consume it. There's plenty of other ways to to follow the Olympics. And if people are really angry that they can't turn to the ABC for this stuff, well, yeah, that's the point. So, like, I I feel like there's probably even going to be harder and further decisions similarly made to cut back on other stuff because that's what they're having to do. Like, if we want the ABC there spending this kind of money on the Olympics, we have to give them this kind of money to spend. So. Yeah, I just kind of felt like the anger was misplaced and that let's not be angry at the ABC about it. Let's understand that this is this is what they're going to have to do when faced with the situation they're faced with. 
I'm not 100% sure, but I vaguely remember from the seven up front. So I think they might have mentioned they're going to cover the Olympics. <laughs> How many times was the word Tokyo mentioned again? 20... 25? Yeah, it's 25, yeah. Um, it's funny as well, we got a comment on our site where somebody made the point that perhaps this is a very sneaky and clever PR move on the basis of the ABC saying, hey, we're not going to cover this massive event that Australians love to get behind because of budget cuts. And then maybe if those budget cuts are addressed, we might in a couple of months see them surprisingly find the money. Uh, I feel like that's too much of a long play and also far too risky because there are already so many people who just love to hate on the ABC and the amount of backlash that they've gotten. It's not the government that's gotten backlash about this. It's not Scott Morrison. Why the hell aren't you giving the ABC enough money to cover our beloved Olympics? It's directed at the ABC. So I, I'm, I'm not sure on that one. I don't think I agree that it was a deliberate move on the ABC's part. And just lastly, quickly, uh, there was also some backlash on news.com.au and BuzzFeed joint investigation about the documentary Silent No More, which is about the Me Too, hashtag Me Too movement in Australia. A copy of it was sent to a chosen group of media, according to the ABC, which did feature names and stories from victims of rape and domestic violence who had not consented to share their stories. The ABC obviously came out, um, said the copy had been pulled and that they were very sorry for the mistake. Tracy Spicer, who was in the documentary, said that she uh, was gutted by the by the mistake. I just wonder what this even means for the documentary going forward. How can you come back from this? Because whether it was seen by five people, whether it was seen by 50 people, I don't know that it matters at this point. I think once you've made such a monumental error, perhaps it's best just to not go forward with the project. Yeah, huge, huge issue with the sort of credibility of it moving forward. Um, what I read, which was interesting, is that the names of alleged perpetrators and men that were spoken about either in sort of disclosures to Tracy Spicer or as part of the documentary, their names were all blurred out. So it was obviously something that was given consideration as part of the production process up until that point, even if it was an early sort of cut to send to media. And something that, so Tracy Spicer spoke at the National Press Club yesterday and she was asked by a number of journalists about this issue. And she, she was asked, well, regardless of how it was treated then in production, was it ethical of you to allow someone to film these messages and names on your phone, knowing that they were given to you in confidence. Um, and she said that she was assured that they wouldn't be in shot, but she obviously also then had them open showing. Why would you even use them? If you're not going to put them in shot, why are they there? I don't know. So, I mean, yeah, there was a piece in Cracky that ran yesterday that um, quoted David Rolfe, who's a media law specialist from Sydney University, and he was saying that it's potentially also a breach of confidence, which is a legal issue, which is if someone tells you something and you know that that something is of complete confidentiality, it's illegal for you to then go and tell someone else that or show someone else that. So, yeah, considering that consent wasn't even given for those messages and stories to appear in the program, let alone for names to be attached to them, it's, yeah, it's it's a shame because I feel like this is the kind of stuff that we need more of, but it also demonstrates how super tricky and difficult and complex it is to tell these stories and to go about the process in a way that's really ethical and gives victims autonomy and and prioritizes their consent 
in a situation where those two things are at issue, right? This is, I think, the second time that BuzzFeed has written a big story about the Me Too movement and Tracy Spicer's involvement in it. And it it's clearly sort of incredibly complicated. Um, I think with Tracy Spicer, particularly reading that first piece on BuzzFeed, which is, is long but worth worth a read because I think it was actually it was you who shared it with the team in the first place, Brittany, if I remember rightly. Mm. Um, I, they're not the form of words they use, but the reader is left with the impression that, um, I'm trying to use, choose my words carefully, but that, that, you know, Tracy Spicer's, uh, profile has risen on the back of her involvement in Me Too. Now I, you know, I have long admired her. I, I, you know, her, her involvement with sort of the, you know, the, the women in media group goes back a long way before Me Too was a hashtag. So, you know, she's, 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 she's got, you know, time in this space. You know, it would be a really unfair to her accuse her of being opportunist, for instance. But it feels like we have such a mess here. We, we, you know, we have all of this stuff. We have the, well, we had the very credible investigation by the Sydney Morning Herald into Don Burke and then the really bodged piece of work by the Telegraph, which obviously eventually ended up in legal action around Geoffrey Rush and the King Lear headline. I guess I just find myself asking how much damage has been done to the Me Too movement in Australia? Um, it really felt like potentially something was going to change in the way it had in the US. Do you think the moment's gone? I don't know. I guess I'm kind of left with a bunch of questions and just more cognizant of, than ever of like how much of a grey area it really is because you think if I, – I don't think anyone at any point, including BuzzFeed, has ever said or wanted to imply that Tracy Spicer did not have the absolute best of intentions. I think it only highlights – how kind of sad and unfortunate and disappointing it is that even someone with the best of intentions can go about and try to do a thing like this but be so overwhelmed by it, so kind of unequipped to properly handle it, so under-resourced to do it, and then that kind of just muddies and tangles it up all further. So, yeah, I don't know. It's It feels like this is kind of another sad notch in the belt of just things along with, you know, defamation laws and all the other stuff that just makes it so hard for it to get up and really gain momentum like it has in the US. Next up, Woolworths, Maya and Australia Post join in the Christmas spirit with their own ad offerings. Woolworths, Maya and Australia Post have released their Christmas ad campaigns this week, following on from last week's Coles and Aldi offerings. So let's kick off with Woolworths. There was a lot of discussion about how this would stack up compared to the other two big supermarkets. Zoe, what do you think about MNC Saatchi's offering? Um, I think it's a very fun ad. I like the idea of this sort of little Santa's workshop, but this time it's in the kitchen. Do you want to describe it for us a little bit? Yeah, yeah. So it sort of shows like the different Woolworths fresh food people working in orchards and in the bakery inside the house and 
picking fresh fruit like cherries, which is a Christmas staple in Australia. Um, there's a mango tree that magically produces hundreds of mangoes and like they're all sort of working like Santa's little elves, like picking fruit and food for Christmas. Don't forget the ham. Oh yeah, yeah there's always ham. Um <laughs> That's Curtis Stone though. I appreciate that there's like less of an emphasis on ham because it's sort of now I feel like that's owned by Aldi. Um, but I feel it gives me a very strong, like Disney Snow White kind of vibe. I feel like the ad is actually quite restrained in that it's created this magical kind of like story, but then it's just kind of restrained. It's not a hundred percent there. Like if you're going to lean into this Disney sort of world, go all out. Like I would love to see if like they really lent into like this magical community of people creating Christmas food, like what that would actually look like. Cause mm. I feel like it's almost there, but it's not a hundred percent of the way there. It's also uh, set to a very peppy Christmas carol, which did stick in my head for about two hours afterwards. So they've definitely managed to follow on from Coles catching an earworm for their commercial. I was watching, I can't remember what it was, but something on BVOD the other night and I got the Holy Trinity of Christmas ads one after the other. And oh man, it was, it was a lot. I agree with Zoe. I think that it was really fun. I really enjoyed it. I liked the premise. It felt like when I watched it back for a second time, I was more aware of kind of the little magical elements. They, for example, uh, have a production line of eggs and someone picks out sort of a really good looking egg. And then that is sort of magically broken over a little flower pile. There's a special name for that, I'm sure, but I'm not a foodie enough to know what it is. And the, the mango tree and those kind of little elements. And I was like, I wish that just on one watch, I was like, yep, this is super magical. This is what Christmas is about. This is the Christmas magic. Everyone's talking about it was probably like 80% of the mm. way there for yeah. me, I think. Yeah. yeah. So I'm totally, totally on board with Zoe's thoughts on this one. I, I suppose if I have, have one issue, issue as, a, as a callback to last week's podcast where I, I, I know you, you chatted about the good folk of Tasmania and their, ang- <laughs> their, their, their anger that, um, that while Stanley and the nut, which was where, where it was actually filmed, which is an area I visited myself not long ago, uh, doesn't actually, uh, have an Aldi anywhere nearby him. I don't think there are any Woolworths in Magical Kingdoms either. Yeah, there doesn't seem to be any anger about that. That's that's an area for them to look into, you know. So one of the other new ads we got this week, Australia Post, they have relied on a much-used Christmas trope for their campaign, a child living across the street from an elderly man who isn't decorating his home because his wife passed away, and that used to be her job, offers some seasonal cheer with a disco ball, which he purchased from Australia Post. The campaign was created by the monkeys. How many Christmas ads have we seen up until this point that have got the sad old neighbor that needs to be cheered up? I'm kind of fine with it though. Like I really liked the ad. My issue with it was that one, I don't really think that there's any ad that can make me think Australia Post is where I want to do my Christmas shopping. And so two, it felt kind of weird. It, it felt like it would have been an ad better suited to a Woolworths or, I mean, if there's something you can get from the supermarket or a Meyer or a Big W or something like that because I was kind of left being like, why would they not lean into they are so um, unrivaled in, that, in, in the market? 
they send the gifts like that's their job because, because you, you, send don't, gifts you don't to need people they don't need Australia to Post. that's exactly like they dominate like but the post who's, space who's they don't to need Australia to post and being like here's but this shitty little disco ball it's the thought that counts Brittany. thank god i'm not buying you christmas presents this year <laughs> well we haven't decided the office chris king gringle yet so oh, that's might, true yeah. but i the important thing for australia post as a business now is their retail um, like that's a massive part of how they are continuing to make money. And so I think it makes a lot of sense for the ad to sort of look into that kind of side of things. It's like simple gifting. It's not like going to Meyer and buying something super extravagant. It's just that like simple gifting. And I think that's an important part for them to point out in their Christmas campaign. Mm, interesting. I probably hadn't thought about it like that. But for me, simple gifting is still like you go to Target or Big W, Australia Post is the place that I never want to go, I never want to line up in, and I'm absolutely not spending any more money than I have to there. And it's about repositioning. They're using this emotional ad. Is it a trope? Yes. Are they reinventing the wheel of Christmas advertising? No. But they're using that emotion because they're trying to reposition like themselves into yeah. like so you eventually will think of a story. And I love like that. I lo- I love the story. I was mm. really invested in it. I was like, I want to buy this old dude a gift, and I want to decorate his Christmas <laughs> house, um, his house for Christmas. So I really enjoyed the ad. I kind of just left feeling like is this an ad I feel is super associated with Australia Post rather than. And any other store and does this make me think any differently about Australia Post? And the answer was probably no. Don't I, have- don't I remember maybe two or three years back, John Lewis in the UK having an ad where oh, it the was man a, on the moon. Yes, a little yes. boy looking at an old yes. man, a lonely old man on the moon through his telescope. The most traumatic Christmas ad of all time. I was living in the UK during that time and it was on every single ad break and it was heartbreaking. Well, now he lives over the street. <laughs> I have two rhetorical questions. Uh, firstly, love that Zoe just described buying a disco ball as simple gifting. Yes, um, I did. <laughs> But they've named the old man in the advert Mr. Greaves as he is grieving his dead wife. Whoever signed off on that? And they say his name. It's not even just like, oh, that's a wink and a nod to everyone writing about the can. They say his name in the ad. Bold choice. Yeah. Um, Let's move on. Maya has again gone tech heavy with its campaign, a global positioning stocking, which you can pair with a smart device to track Santa is the star of the campaign. It can also be purchased in store for $34.95, which follows on obviously from last year's naughty or nice baubles, which were both campaigns delivered from Clemenger BBDO Melbourne. Is this the trick to a successful campaign to make something that people have to go into your store to purchase? I thought this one was really interesting. I really enjoyed the TVC. Again, it felt kind of heartwarming and you really felt for that little girl like, oh, no, imagine being that age and worrying that Santa isn't going to find you. I do remember being that age and worrying Santa wasn't going to find (laughs) me. seeing a whole new side to you this podcast. You're a sucker for all these Christmas stories. Oh, look, I feel like this week I... I love it all. Um, so, yeah, I really enjoyed the ad. I like the idea that they're, they've tied it to something that you can actually buy because a lot of the comments were like, okay, well, this is great. Is this actually a product? And also it it kind of continues last year's successful campaign but in kind of a new and fresh way in that 
it it's connecting Maya to tech and to something that's a little bit forward thinking, which that brand desperately needs and making you go into store when they are mm. having so much trouble getting foot traffic through stores and stores have closed throughout the year, et cetera. So yeah, I, I really enjoyed this one. thought it was great. Yeah. It's a whole new sort of realm of their customer experience because now you have this app that's an extension of that. I don't know. Is it so you track Santa coming to you or is the stomach, is the stocking like a homing beacon, you know, like that calls Santa to you? I don't know. That's how it sort works. of where I was slightly concerned. I feel concerned like we may yeah, have to have a difficult have a conversation talk? with Zoe about Santa. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, I, he'll come down to Melbourne to our Christmas party, Hannah. <laughs> Um, it'll I'm, be it'll be Tim in a Santa suit. Oh, oh no, let's not incite that. <laughs> let's not do that. Um, hey, um, I'll tell you one thing I found myself thinking when I, I watched the Maya. I love the Maya ad, by the way. It mm. really feels like classic, a classic ad that felt like Clem and your BBDO at their best, Clem's Melbourne, beautifully directed, really nicely shot, really nicely cast. The you know the 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 anxious girl was really likable um it's a terrific ad um if i hadn't read the news story to go with it i wouldn't have really understood it was about a real product i'm glad you said that because i hadn't seen it on our site i must have been away when that story came in i think but i saw it on tv last night a couple of times and i didn't know it was a product i had no Mm. idea it wasn't Mm. until i read the story that i got that i'll tell you one thing that did strike me about that and the australia post ad if you took the end messages and the end logans logos from those two ads and swapped them either story could have been for the other Mm. yeah and I think that's what I thought as well when watching the Maya one and maybe solidified my unpolished thoughts about the Australia Post one is that it felt like the Maya one had those messages about getting a present somewhere and making sure that it gets to the right person in the right spot that for me I was like this would have made so much sense for Oz Post um and that's why I felt like the message was maybe a little bit off with the Oz Post one. But I totally agree to him. I thought it was really beautifully done. And I was very much at my Christmas most, I don't know, Christmas Your softest most or most nostalgic. <laughs> See, then in an interesting throwback to the beginning of this conversation, I reckon if you took all branding out of the Woolies one, you'd have still picked that that was a Woolworths ad. It's the green. It's the green. Mm -hmm. It's the green. And I reckon they shoot their Christmas ads the same way every year. They always look that kind of really sparkly, high contrast. So good choice, Woolies. Next up, the results of the penultimate radio rating survey of the year. This week also saw the penultimate GFK radio rating survey of the year. Uh, This is survey seven, which covers August 28th to November 2, with a week off in the middle there for September 21st to 29. One of the biggest headlines that came out of this survey went to Melbourne, where formerly UK-based Christian O'Connell has helped ARN's Gold FM successfully take the lead in breakfast. That was beating SCA Osterio's Fox FM. Uh, I should point out that's the FM breakfast win. Both stations still sizably behind Macquarie Media's 3AW, which has a huge 20.6% share in breakfast in Melbourne. Tim, you've interviewed Christian before for this very podcast that we're on. 
Um, I wasn't here when he came over just over a year ago, he came over, but I understand it was a massive gamble when it happened. Yeah. Look, it was seen as a risk and look, and I guess Australian radio network are seen as willing to take risks. They're the people who rebranded a whole radio station to create kiss and bring Carl Sanderlands and, and Jackie O over in, in Sydney from today FM, which changed the landscape in Sydney. They, they did similarly in Melbourne. Yeah. Bringing in British talent, you know, and, and, a couple of times in the past I've spoken to a program controller who's not necessarily talked about, about um, Christian O'Connell before it was Johnny Vaughan saying, would he work in this market? That time they didn't dare in the end or, or it didn't happen for whatever reason. But yeah, you know, the fact that it took only just over a year for someone brand new to the market to go from not even the market to number one in FM is, is incredible. But you know, I, I kind of, yeah, when I, when I knew I was, you know, hey, I used to listen to him sometimes in the UK, but when I knew that I was doing the, the podcast chat, which I guess people can search back to if they want to hear, you know, I, I kind of, you know, made the effort to, to try and listen to some of his output. And he just works so hard. He works so hard to localize it. There's not a single link he does that doesn't mention a Melbourne suburb time in, time out. Just very, very kind of humble. And then I noticed when he tweeted the link to the, to the, the Mumbrella cast at the time, he said something like, um, that's about half of the story. So it does feel like there's more behind that went on behind the <laughs> scenes that we don't yet know. And another thing that I noticed when I listened to your interview with him, Tim, was one of the things that he did, which I thought, oh, that's so genius, is kind of lean into you guys don't know whether to trust me. I totally get that. I'm totally new here. Help me figure it out. What AFL team should I go for? And and how do I best become a Melbourneite? And I thought that was so clever. And just at the end of the interview, you're like, yes, I can 100% imagine listening to him every morning, feeling like he's your really good mate feeling like you get along with someone even though you're not really interacting with them and when you say that i mean he does though like listen yeah. you know when when um uh the radio station went to number one the i think the was it the survey before or two surveys two ago, surveys ago. Uh, and you know he, he tweeted something about that and got you know dozens if not hundreds of congratulations mm. he replied to everyone on yeah, twitter right. and you could just see they're all slightly different it was just like things like you know thanks for giving me a chance thanks for listening so yeah, yeah right. he really works the interaction side of things yeah. as well. i suppose i i meant as someone who doesn't listen to melbourne breakfast radio who has never interacted with him it felt at the end like that was a really nice interaction even though it wasn't. So, yeah, I couldn't help but feel, like, really glad for him and, like, oh, good on you. Like, that's a really nice story, it felt like. And, Britt, you covered Adelaide, and that was one of the other big headlines for the survey. It was. So, Nova dethroned Mix. So, Mix had won 27 surveys straight, which was a really impressive run, but Nova managed to squeeze ahead by 0.1%. So they're now on a 12% share and Mix is on an 11.9% share. And that's overall? Yes, overall. Um, so yeah, really, really good result for Nova. Um, kind of chipping away, chipping away, chipping away at um, a station that's been ahead for, you know, surveys and surveys on end. So aren't Nova set to get Ben and Liam next year as well in Adelaide? They are indeed. So, so it'll be interesting to see. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, one of the other big headlines from the survey, uh, SCA's choice. This is the first survey we've seen the response to their choice to run a music only breakfast show on Today FM. Today FM obviously has been deep in the struggles since the loss of Kyle and Jackie O way back in the day. Um, there was a very marginal increase, 0.1 percentage points, which puts them on 2.6% in breakfast. I've seen a lot of headlines which are saying, oh, well, it obviously proves it didn't work and what a flop and et cetera, et cetera. I think maybe what were we expecting? Like them to suddenly jump 17% in one share? Like it, I just, I don't see how people can judge it off one survey. People are the worst. <laughs> I also feel like having done this, you know, for almost a year now, I think these radio surveys, the thing that always stands out to me is because they happen every three months, you don't get that much movement. Like a 0.5 percentage point movement is like enough for a headline, basically. So I think expecting anything that's really going to knock the needle is maybe mm. a little bit ridiculous. And oftentimes because you look because they happen every three months, you would just look at it on a three month basis and like there could be people sitting around fifth who just creep and creep and creep. You can like I cover Brisbane and you can see that a lot sometimes it really moves around and all of a sudden one station's, you know, moved up a point ahead of one that was on the top and it just moves a lot and I think that's part of it is that you just sort of don't realize some of the ones that are creeping up there and then all of a sudden they're coming second and you're like oh yeah it's a (laughs) sneaky attack uh full circle back to Alan Jones his breakfast show on 2GB dropped 0.7 percentage points massive drop um, is boycott this... works, people. <laughs> <laughs> well, so it's also worth noting 2GB overall did hold steady. They only lost 0.1 percentage points. Do we think any of this is a response to backlash or is this just usual survey movements? No, people love Alan. End of story. It's depressing. Look, I've, I've, I've seen his numbers fluctuate up and down by more than that over the years you know and let's remember you know this is this is people filling out a diary as the survey so it's it's what do you remember listening to you know what 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 are you happy to tell the researchers that you listen to so yeah i i i think drawing conclusions about listening patterns based on uh outrage there's not much evidence to support it i think Mm, totally that's it from us the week but if you are looking to improve on your influencer marketing we still have tickets available for Mumbrella Masterclass which I believe is being held next week next Tuesday and Thursday I think there we go next Tuesday and Thursday in that's Sydney November 19 and Melbourne November 21 uh, this is being led by Social Soup's founder and CEO, Sharon Smith, and she's going to take a deep dive into the current influencer marketing climate and understand the sometimes complex influencer ecosystem. So if that's something that sounds good to you, you can go to mumbrella.com.au slash masterclass. I believe there's still a couple of tickets available for that one. As for us, we are off. Thank you, everyone, for joining me. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.